is Diagnosis Glaucoma with your hosts, Dr. Mona Colleen and Dr. Harry Quigley. Well, this is a very special podcast today. We have a guest for our Diagnosis Glaucoma podcast who is probably the U.S. expert and maybe the world's expert on childhood glaucoma. This is Dr. Jamie Brandt, who is at the University of California at Davis. And uh, Jamie, welcome to uh, Diagnosis Glaucoma. Great to be here, Harry. What we'll do, and we have a, another podcast. So for those who listen to our podcast, there is another podcast that we did on the general subject of glaucoma in children. But I think today we're going to ask some of the same questions and perhaps some new information. So even if you've heard that other podcast, you're going to want to listen to this one as well. Jamie, I think one of the things that is uh, special about childhood onset glaucoma is that either the parents or a relative are very often the first persons to recognize that there's something wrong with a child's eyes, though pediatricians or obstetricians occasionally do so. What is the situation in diagnosing kids with glaucoma that, in your experience, uh, is either the most common or the best way? for families to recognize that there's a child with glaucoma? Great question, Harry. The typical findings in a young child, meaning under, say, two years of age and in infants, is either clouding of one or both corneas or slow enlargement of the actual eye itself. One eye or both eyes can be affected by glaucoma, so Another sign is asymmetric or different size between the two eyes. What happens in this disease is that the pressure builds up in the infant's eye and causes it to grow in size because the young eye is very flexible. And with high pressures, the eye begins to expand. If only one eye is affected, that one eye looks bigger than the fellow eye. In addition, the high pressure sometimes forces fluid into the cornea, the clear part of the eye, and it can become cloudy. This can become transient, meaning that it happens for a little while and then clears up. So a parent will sometimes see, notice one day that a child has a cloudy or a whitish area of the front of the eye, and sometimes the child will have tearing be very uncomfortable or fussy, or be very sensitive to light. And that can pass. The typical story that I've seen is that they go to the pediatrician, they get in to see them a few days later, the cornea has cleared, the pediatrician sees nothing, and since this is an extremely rare disease, the pediatrician often says, well, let me know if this happens again and we miss an opportunity to get an early diagnosis. So for parents who are thinking, let's see, he said the front of the eye was cloudy. If the eye is blue, and for many European-derived kids, it's a, a blue-eyed baby or a youngster in their first year or two of life, or for a brown-eyed child, it means that the parent or the family wouldn't be able to see the blue part of the eye or the brown part of the eye. Is that fair? That's fair, and it varies from a, just a little small area of the cornea to the entire cornea becoming cloudy. Is this painful for the child? In other words, would you expect this, the kid to be you know, rubbing their eye and be fussy and uncomfortable or not? 
These days, parents carry smartphones in their pockets and they're taking pictures of their kids 20 times a day. And a patient of mine recently shared with me the video of the first time this happened. And she actually caught on video the child getting really fussy and crying. And she got a video of the eye becoming cloudy. Interestingly, I saw the child a few days later and much of the clouding had resolved. So my advice to parents is if you see something you're concerned about, capture it on your smartphone, take a video and show that to the pediatrician or to the eye care provider you're going to and whatever to show what it was that you saw when this happened, because it may be transient. On the big test that eye doctors take uh, in order to be certified, there are two symptoms that are very often listed. And those symptoms are sensitivity to light and tearing of the eye. Do you find those to be often enough that they're a good sign? And how do you differentiate them from other causes of those same things? Those are signs of glaucoma, but they are so common that their ability to identify glaucoma is relatively poor. Specifically, lots of kids have tearing in the first year of life. Many children have what are called closed nasal lacrimal ducts that mature a little bit later and the tearing goes away. Similarly, a lot of kids, especially blue-eyed children, have a little bit more light sensitivity when they go outside in the sun. And that, again, is not a sign necessarily of glaucoma. It's the constellation of signs, a larger-than-normal eye, asymmetric eye size, or intermittent clouding of the cornea that should raise concern acutely and get you in to see an ophthalmologist. I think one of the things that's changed most dramatically is our ability to measure the eye pressure, even in an infant or a young child, where in the past we had to put in eye drops and do things that were so scary for the kid that you couldn't get the eye pressure measured. But I think in these days that we now have a particular tonometer that doesn't require eye drops, we can get a lot more of an exam in on a young child, and it may have raised the awareness such that more kids should be taken to the eye doctor to get that pressure measured, just to be sure that tearing or sensitivity to light, as you said, are simply a nonspecific thing and not actually glaucoma, because the stakes are very high to miss glaucoma. Absolutely. You had mentioned that it's a rare disorder. Uh, do you have any numbers? I mean, if you said out of 1,000 or 10,000 kids born in the United States, how many kids would have childhood onset glaucoma? There are some data, and I'm working on additional data using some of the larger national databases, which if we have time, we can talk about later. But the general incidence data is that in the United States, which is very diverse in terms of ethnic diversity and heredity, and we'll talk about that as well, the estimate is that about 1 in 15,000 live births has a child with a form of what is called primary congenital glaucoma, which is the one of the most common causes of childhood glaucoma. It varies among different ethnic groups as well as different communities. We can talk about that, but and we'll talk also about the fact that this is in many cases a genetically determined disease. We have not identified all of the genes that and mutations that lead to childhood glaucoma, but because these are often familial disorders, meaning that they're genetically determined, families and communities where relatively closer related individuals marry each other or are close-knit communities 
the gene frequency in those communities is higher, so they can be the disease can be much more common in those groups. Now, for the adult open angle glaucoma, it's more common in those who are African derived, and for angle closure glaucoma in adults, it's more common in Asian derived persons. Other than those cultures where first cousins often marry, is there actually a greater prevalence of childhood onset glaucoma? For people of particular derivations? Not that I am aware. You know, some of the more frequent uh, genetic mutations that are known occur in people of Roma heritage, for example, from Eastern Europe, but disentangling the relative, what is called consanguinity, sharing of genetic material in close relatives, is hard to disentangle. But to my knowledge, there is really no racial or cultural or ethnic linkage to specific forms of glaucoma. We just recently had a, a wonderful lecture here at, at our Wilmer Eye Institute by Dr. Ed Stone, who's one of the country's leading people in genetic diseases of the eye, mostly adult genetic diseases. But a point that Dr. Stone made was that commercially available genetic tests, unfortunately, usually look for only the most common known genes associated with some of the eye diseases. And we really aren't at the point yet, according to his opinion, where we can say to somebody, there's a good commercial test. And if you have that test, you'll be sure that you yourself don't have that eye disease or that your child wouldn't have that eye disease. What, if any, do you recommend for adults, for their kids to have a genetic test done? Or would it only be if you've already got one affected member of the family one child affected, and you want to be sure you find out uh, what that defect, if it's a known defect, was, so that you'd know about whether subsequent children might have the same thing. I think your latter comment is absolutely right on. I think this is such a rare disease that we should not be using the resources to screen for a rare disease. But if a family has an affected child or has a pedigree of multiple generations with the various congenital glaucoma diagnoses, absolutely working with a genetic counselor, a, a clinical geneticist to see if they can identify any of the known mutations in the family is extremely helpful. To my knowledge, nobody is doing any sort of prenatal testing, but once you've identified a child with congenital glaucoma, it's extremely useful to identify the specific mutation if it can be identified. And this has several useful aspects to it. The most useful is if you identify a known mutation and you have other children to identify whether or not the mutation exists in subsequent children or siblings. And the reason this is important is the mutation or congenital glaucoma can present quite severely or quite mildly without much in the way of symptoms. And identifying children who do not have the mutation means that you don't really need to be worried about them, and they can just get routine eye exams as they grow older. On the other hand, if you have a subsequent child who has the mutation and doesn't seem to have any problems early on, you know because they have the mutation, they need to be followed pretty closely. Yeah, I think the uh, we just had a family in whom seven generations developed glaucoma by age 10. 
This is just barely in the realm of childhood onset glaucoma, which you and I are talking about today. But the mother of four little kids had the mutation that each member of the family has. And we were very pleased that out of her four kids, only one of the four is carrying that mutation. Now, as yet, none of the four kids is showing glaucoma. And I have to say that even though what you've just said is logical, that you can relax a little bit about a child who doesn't have the known family mutation, every one of those four little kids is getting very detailed exams every year because we don't really trust that we can be sure that only that mutation is the cause of the glaucoma in that family. There may be something else going on, and what if one of the other children has that? So I think that your admonition that very close follow-up might be good to do will apply for any family that has an affected kid. Let's get on to treatments. In adults with glaucoma, we use eye drops, we use laser treatment, we do surgery. What are the likely treatments, let's say, for a child who develops glaucoma in the first couple of years of life? The treatment of glaucoma in young children is primarily surgical. And we believe that what happens in this disease, the most common form of the disease of primary congenital glaucoma, is that the natural drainage channels of the eye are malformed in some way. And we're still working out the biology and the cell biology and the anatomy of what happens in this disease. The primary procedures that have been done since the 19, late 30s, early 40s have been the incision or opening up of the natural drain of the eye. And this procedure originally was called goniotomy, invented by Otto Barkan here in the Northern California area, and then trabeculotomy. These are both procedures that essentially do the same thing. They open up the natural drain of the eye. This works extremely well and is generally the primary procedure for childhood onset glaucoma. We don't generally treat these children with medications for more than a few weeks to get them to the surgery or to supplement the pressure-lowering effect of the surgery. If you've ever tried to put eye drops in a screaming little toddler, two-year-old, it's not easy to do. So we know that compliance or adherence and consistent treatment of a child with eye drops is simply not practical. And the surgery works so very well in many of these children that it is what we go to first. There's presently a whole bunch of new glaucoma surgeries, and we've done a podcast on two or three of the types of what are called minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries. Do you think any of those have dramatically changed or improved the treatment of childhood onset glaucoma with surgery? Well, the standard MIGS procedures that go into the angle, such as the eye stent and hydrus and a few other things, I'm not sure that they really play a major role. These are things that are being added to adult cataract surgery and so on, and I'm convinced that they're really not appropriate for pediatric glaucoma, especially because angle surgery in its current form, such as goniotomy or something we call GAT, in which we cannulate or stick a catheter into the natural drain and then open it up, works so very, very well. As you know, Harry, and, and I think this is your leading question, I've been involved with the development of a new surgical device called the MicroShunt, and recently we just published, I just published the 
initial results in, in 12 children in whom I placed this. And this appears to be a very useful interim step if angle surgery fails before we go on to do the more standard adult surgery, such as a trabeculectomy or a glaucoma drainage device. What you're suggesting, and I think this is good news for parents who are listening, if you have a child who's already had the initial type of surgery, the angle surgery we're talking about, and it didn't work, you're not finished. There isn't just a one and done thing. There is a whole series of things that can be done later, though they're not the first choice for the surgeries. And as you said, the thing called a tube shunt can be done in children. Our experience with it is that while it can work, it also has uh, greater problems than it does in adults. Yes, absolutely. But just as a caveat in terms of the new device that I'm working with, it is not yet approved by the FDA for use in adults. So I have a very limited approval from FDA to be able to put this in a very small group of patients. Our preliminary data looks very promising, and a group of us around the country are hoping to work with FDA to figure out a way to do a prospective clinical trial of this device in children. But this is now April of 2022, as you and I sit and chat about this. Stay tuned, but designing these big clinical trials is not something that happens overnight, but it's our, it's our goal over the next year or two. Is it fair to say that the standard surgeries, the angle surgery, goniotomy, trabeculotomy, glaucoma, uh, GAT, a procedure. Is it fair to say that those work in the majority of kids so that they don't actually need to go on to more surgery? I would say that they work extremely well, and it really depends on the type of glaucoma that a patient has. If this is purely what we call primary congenital glaucoma presenting in the first year or two of life, the GAT procedure, which is my go-to procedure for this disorder, works extremely well. And having been doing this for about 30 years, I see I'm operating now on the children of many of the patients that I operated on when I started my practice, and the parents are, many of them are doing quite well. But it's not a cure. And the children who have these procedures do need to continue to be monitored into adulthood and beyond you know, they're not disease-free for the rest of their life. And that both of us work at tertiary eye centers. Uh, both of us have worked with a lot of kids over time. Is If you were a parent whose child was diagnosed with glaucoma, do you think this is something that would be usually handled by an ophthalmologist who is simply a board-certified ophthalmologist? And I don't mean simply to be pejorative, but someone who also sees adults and does regular eye care. Or is this something that should or might better be handled by those who see a lot of kids? I think absolutely this is a rare disease. Most surgeons, well, put it this way, the average ophthalmologist, it was estimated years ago, is likely to see a newly diagnosed primary congenital glaucoma once or twice in a long career. You really want somebody managing the child who is seeing a lot of this and doing a lot of the surgery. Serpenka in the UK has talked about many times, he works on pediatric glaucoma there in the UK, and he's often said, the first chance is the best chance. So you want the initial surgery to be done first by the most experienced person. 
Yeah, I think it's very hard. It's very hard for parents, you know, who live in a rural area or something, and they have a child uh, who has this unusual disorder. But I think it's it's fair to say, and we're not just touting our own horn here, that this is something the average ophthalmologist is very delighted to send to Jamie Brandt or to one of the other specialists in a regional area who sees kids every week who have this kind of problem. What other things happen in either the eyes of kids who have congenital or childhood glaucoma, or what other things do parents uh, need to know about in terms of the systemic health of their child? Well, pediatric glaucoma or primary congenital glaucoma per se is not associated with additional systemic problems, but there are many forms of glaucoma that show up in early childhood or even at birth. And some of the more common ones that I see, they're extremely rare, include aniridia, in which the iris is congenitally absent, Sturge-Weber syndrome, which is a situation of port wine stains involving the face around one or both eyes and often is also associated with seizures. And that would be perhaps a whole other podcast about the management of Sturge-Weber syndrome, Harry, because you have one of the world's authorities on Sturge-Weber syndrome at uh, Hopkins in your neurology department. But that's a separate aside. Yeah, my colleague Henry Jampel spends a lot of time seeing kids with with Sturge-Weber and adults with Sturge-Weber. But I think the point then is an experienced ophthalmologist who sees a lot of kids with glaucoma will be able to know if the eye findings look like X, then we need to go look for Y. There could be even a form of cancer or uh, abnormal blood vessels in the brain, things that we know to look for and that usually can be managed. And if they're not there, of course, you can be much more reassured. We want to get to a couple other issues. One is, do you think that the average kid who gets congenital or childhood onset glaucoma is going to be a blind kid or are they going to have vision good enough to mainstream in school? What's the impairment rate overall and how does it vary? Again, not to tout the, you know, getting people to me or to you, but I do firmly believe that the outcomes are better where you have a full multidisciplinary team approach to managing the pediatric glaucoma because it's not just measuring the pressure and managing the pressure. It also involves making sure that they do not develop amblyopia or a lazy eye in one eye versus the other. So there's a lot of refractive management, a lot of amblyopia management, and many of these children reach school and are mainstreamed. I would say the vast majority of children of mine with congenital glaucoma end up mainstreaming well into high school. Do they have the sharpest vision? Not all of them. Most of them, I think, get to teenage years able to drive. Not all of them, but the majority of them. So this is not a sentence of lifetime blindness. Are they going to be flying, going to the Naval Academy and becoming fighter pilots that that land jets on an aircraft carrier? Probably not. But these kids can have a normal life and be mainstreamed in high school and beyond. Are there any other aspects, Jamie, that are worth mentioning for parents and families, especially as a grandparent at the moment? You know, you sit and live and die for your grandkids. Anything else that you think should be information that might be useful to the families? Well, I think one of the most important things is 
In fact, in my practice and probably yours, the most common childhood onset glaucoma occurs in children that had cataract surgery in early life. Marshall Parks estimated, this is 30, 40 years ago, that 50 to 60% of children who have cataract surgery in the first year of life will go on to develop glaucoma sometime in the next one to two decades. There's a recent clinical trial that's continuing to collect data called the Infant Aphakia Treatment Study that was a study designed primarily to look at whether lens implants were appropriate in young children, but there was a additional data analysis looking at the onset of glaucoma in their patients that are followed at multiple centers. And the data is tracking very nicely with what Dr. Parks suggested in the 1970s and 80s, that a substantial number of these children will go on to develop glaucoma. So the take-home message is, if your child had cataract surgery in the first few years of life, they really need to be monitored for the onset of glaucoma for the rest of their lives. They have a very high chance of developing it later in life, sometimes in late first decade of life or teenage years. And I've certainly seen many tragedies over the years where a child had congenital cataract surgery, lost to follow-up, was seen by clinicians who, because the kid was squirmy, didn't measure pressure, didn't look at the optic nerve, was just managing the refractive aspects of things, and then the child has lost substantial vision because of unrecognized glaucoma. Recognize that the pressure, if it goes up at age eight or nine, the eye is not going to expand in size. The optic nerve is what's going to take the hit. Well, Jamie, thanks. I think there's a ton of good information that folks uh, got today on this podcast. I've mentioned already at the start, we have a, another podcast that deals with uh, childhood onset glaucoma and, of course, 30 or so other podcasts in the diagnosisglaucoma.com series from wherever you get your podcasts. We certainly want to thank Dr. Jamie Brand of the University of California, Davis, for being with us today. And Jamie, thanks. I hope to see you again soon at a meeting upcoming. Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks, Harry. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, your mom says take your drops.